Hello everyone, I'm Blake Farha. And I'm Jasmaya. And this is See You in Sleep County, a podcast where I read stories to you which are taken from Jazz's many journals and written in a way to be peaceful, delightful stories to help whisk you off into a long, peaceful, joyful slumber. We have another story for you tonight, but before we get to that story, I'd just like to check in a little bit. Jazz, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, actually. Um, this week, my, my mom went through a box of my old journals that I've been storing um, back in Australia for the last six years and um, painstakingly photographed every every page of one of those many journals. So, yeah, I spent some time this week reading back over what life was like for 22-year-old Jazz, which was quite interesting. Oh, yeah. And what was it like uh, looking back on those journals from where you are now as current modern-day jazz? What was it like to read the thoughts of 22-year-old jazz? Mm, it, there was, to be honest, there was, it was a bittersweet experience, I think. There was a little bit of melancholy in there, as well as um, some amusement, you know, when we look back on younger versions of ourselves, you know, as we grow older, we hopefully grow wiser so whenever you look back in time there's a there's some level of naivety that's um that's there and uh yeah it was really it was really interesting to see myself in that time I was very very open to the world and very excited by life and just ecstatic to be alive to to experience whatever came my way and um yeah, I feel like I've lost a little bit of that, so it's nice to be reminded that that's there, that that's an option. And you were living in Australia at the time these journals were written? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was living in Australia, and um, but it was also the year that I, that I left Australia for the first time in my adult life, that I travelled abroad for the first time, and that was a big... That was, uh, that was a life-changing experience, I would say, in that it probably was the foreshadowing to to me living in Europe now. You mentioned that 22-year-old Jazz was all bright-eyed and Mm bushy-tailed. And how does that relate to where you are now? Do you feel like uh, you're somehow less bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? Somewhat somewhat less, yeah, which I... I mean, I wouldn't say I regret because I try not to regret anything, but but I would like to reignite some of that, yeah, hopefulness that that maybe I've let go of a little bit. That I've become a bit jaded too, <laughs> so yeah. And it's really wonderful that you have these old documents of very credible first-hand knowledge of the experience you were having mm-hmm. at the time, um, uh, and it's sort of something that you can look back on and measure yourself against now. You can sort of see how you are now versus how you were in the past. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I love most about having chronicled my life, that I have some tangible recording of who I was at previous stages of my life that I have something I can actually look back on mm, yeah um, and I'm not sure if that's entirely psychologically healthy <laughs> to constantly be looking into the past but but it is an interesting exercise and we were talking earlier you said you had an excerpt from the journal that you wanted to read before we started tonight's story yeah I, I stumbled across this page in in that journal from from 2012 um, and it was written after I'd taken a break from from journaling for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was musing upon the purpose of my writing, so I'll just read that now because I think it gives a good good background to, to why I do this. Um, 
and why we have ended up here today reading stories from my journals. <laughs> so, so the journal says, Writing is something that's always come naturally to me. Keeping a journal just seemed to be the obvious thing to do. I guess it's because I'm afraid of losing all these moments. Because once they're gone, they're gone. You can only revisit them in your memory, and your memory is unreliable, always shifting and changing, dropping facts and picking them up unpredictably. Once they're gone, they're gone. Mm. You said a mouthful there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's been an interesting lifelong project of mine to um to write down my life, so as not to lose it. And again, I'm not sure that's entirely healthy, <laughs> but but um yeah, it's it's my project of some kind. Well, it's actually really interesting because um, neuroscientists have done a lot of research into this and they've actually found that it's true that the more you recall a memory, the more inaccurate that memory mm. becomes. Every time you recall it, every time you think about it, your brain starts to merge your present state, where, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're experiencing with that memory. And slowly but surely things begin to get more and more inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really nice that you have all of these credible first-hand accounts of what you were going through in your life as you uh, to look back on as you get mm-hmm. older. So anyway, Chaz, uh, what are we going to be reading about tonight? Uh, so tonight's story is set in Paris. It's, um, it's entitled In the Shadow of Notre Dame. And it's, um, yeah, it's a story from that first trip abroad that I took. And you'll see a lot of that bright-eyed and bushy-tailed um, demeanor coming through in the story. But um, yeah, well, well, we'll see in the story what happens next. Oh, I'm very excited about it. Um, I love Paris. It's one of my favorite cities in the world to visit, and it's one of those places that just defies description. There is something so magical about it, so deceptively magical, because it does have all the trappings of a big, major metropolitan city, and yet there is something so magical in the air there's just a vibe mm. and a feeling that can't quite be uh, put into words in my mind so it's such a fun place mm. to visit it's always so full of wonderful experiences yeah absolutely um i haven't mentioned it on the podcast before but as you know blake i'm, I'm currently writing a novel and um the first third of it is set in paris and as you say it's a it's a city that's very difficult to describe it's it's so many things at once um so it's quite an interesting task for a writer to, yeah, to try to capture Paris in words. It is indeed a very ineffable city. And with that, I'll allow Blake to whisk you away into that world, into that ineffable city in tonight's story, in the shadow of Notre Dame. So this is Jazz Meyer, and I will see you tonight in Sleep County. Thank you very much, Jazz. prepare for tonight's story, gently close your eyes and snuggle into bed. Allow yourself to find that position that feels just right. And when you found that perfect spot all nestled among the covers, take a nice, slow, deep breath, letting the worries of the day drift away as you exhale. Imagine the air simply falling into your belly effortlessly as you breathe in. And as you breathe out, 
Imagine the breath simply and effortlessly falling out of you again. Take a moment to feel the bed beneath you, gently supporting all the curves of your body. Release any tension you might be feeling, starting with the muscles in your face. One by one, allow them to go slack. Let the muscles in your arms, shoulders, and chest relax. Move your attention to your belly now, your lower back, and let them just sink into the mattress. Release any tightness in your thighs, your knees, your calves, and your feet. And now enjoy, for a moment, the feeling of total relaxation, your body completely and totally at ease. Let's take another deep breath in, air simply falling into your belly, and now let that same air back out, releasing any stress, tension, worry you may have. And now, for tonight's story. In the shadow of Notre Dame. I'd heard about it long before I first stepped foot inside the crammed, somewhat shabby building. Painted a dirty white and a rich forest green, Shakespeare and Company could easily have been any other bookshop. But it wasn't. I don't remember quite where I'd first heard the name mentioned. Perhaps some bookworm friend had waxed lyrical about it and it had stuck in my mind. In any case, I'd made it a point to come here, perhaps the only attraction I was intent on visiting in Paris. It was my first trip abroad, my first time in Paris, and I was giddy with the intoxication of travel. Already I'd fallen in love with the city, but its most eagerly awaited treasure was still to come. The train rumbled up to the station, the comforting clack-clack signaling its arrival to the bustling crowd gathered in the underground. Swept up in the flow of passengers, I stepped onto the carriage with a childlike sense of wonder. The simplest things, in a different context, become magical. The worn plastic seats and linoleum floor, aged and dulled by millions of people before me, somehow glowed with the warmth of something well-loved. It was with the naive and romantic vision of a first-time traveler that I saw that city, saw everything bathed in the magical light of the novel and exotic. Moving down the aisle, I found an empty booth seat, excited to be part of the everyday motion of the Paris underground. Like a good tourist, I'd packed a snack, and it was presently that I pulled the bag of peanuts from my backpack and began munching. I sat, watching avidly as the city slid by, and soon I began to pay attention to my fellow passengers, other characters in what was, to me, a surreal scene. In the seat opposite me sat an elderly gentleman, head adorned by a black beret, expertly askew. 
His face was square but soft, the wrinkles around his mouth and eyes belying a lifetime of smiles and laughter. Beige pants pulled high, hands gripping his cane. He epitomized the sweetness and charm of any grandfather. He smiled at me, a simple smile of human kindness, and, in return, I offered him some peanuts. He laughed and made a gesture that indicated his polite decline. On the plane over, I had obsessively studied a tiny French phrase book, and I was determined to put it to use. Though I could barely string a sentence together, my eagerness had me willing to try. And so began our conversation. We chatted haltingly in French, his slow, mine broken. He asked if I liked France, where I came from, what I was doing here, and I answered as best as I could, with a scattered array of random words, and, though he didn't understand most of what I said, he seemed very happy to be speaking with me, and I felt the same way. Soon, he asked me where I was going, and I told him, attempting to inquire after the station where I should disembark. Notre Dame, he exclaimed happily. Yes, my beloved destination was located directly opposite one of the most famous cathedrals in the world, and, though I generally had little interest in history or architecture, I knew I wouldn't resist a visit to its sacred halls. The old man explained something to me in a collection of vocabulary I did not yet possess, and there were a few awkward moments of back and forth, him patiently explaining slowly and clearly, me asking disjointed questions to extract the meaning of his words. And then, from the booth across the aisle, a young woman leaned over, dark skin resplendent in the afternoon light, curly black hair spilling over her shoulders. In a rich French accent, she explained, He says he'll go with you. Looking back to the man, he smiled at me and nodded, displaying his eagerness to assist a lost traveler in a big city. It was such a touching and innocent gesture, but entirely unnecessary, and I tried to express that as best I could. He was adamant, though, and when my stop came, he stood, motioning for me to follow. Down the metro steps we walked and out into the city. Once again, as a feeble gesture of thanks, I offered him some of my peanuts. This time he accepted perhaps out of politeness more than actual interest. But it strengthened the bond we'd formed during the train ride, and now my new friend was leading me out into the crowded streets of Paris. There on the sidewalk, in the bustle of the city, he led me through the crowd, his paper-thin hand wrapped around mine in a gesture of paternal care. As we shuffled along, he pointed to restaurants and shops, mentioning some interesting fact about each that was entirely lost on my anglophone ears. It was touching, though, his insistence upon showing me his city, and I nodded politely, my eyes drinking in all that my ears could not. Then, looming in the distance, but at the same time almost upon us, was Notre Dame. I was awestruck immediately and the old man smiled a knowing smile, 
obviously pleased with my reaction. He said again, with that same gleeful expression, Notre Dame. And when I turned to him, he bid me adieu, giving a chaste kiss on each cheek in a typical French departure. I was left there, watching him retreat slowly to the metro from which we'd emerged together. He couldn't have known what a surreal impression he'd made upon me, a wide-eyed girl falling in love with the magic of travel. Or perhaps he knew exactly. As he disappeared down the subway steps, I turned again toward the cathedral that towered over me. Before arriving in Paris, I'd heard of Notre Dame, of course, but somehow I never made any connection to the real thing. It had seemed so ephemeral and distant. Now, though, standing before it, I recognized it with a familiarity that surprised me. As a child, I'd had a little plastic model of this monument of architecture. The hunchback of Notre Dame had just come out, and the toy was drawn from one of the Happy Meals that punctuated my childhood. I'd kept it for a long time after that, and for a while it was something I played with daily until it disappeared into the depths of the garden, never to return. Until this moment, I hadn't made the connection between that little plastic recreation and the real thing. But now those childhood memories came flooding back, and the sense of nostalgia was almost overwhelming, projecting all the carefree happiness of childhood onto the building before me. I knew Shakespeare and company was waiting for me somewhere, but I didn't yet know where exactly, so I strolled toward the monolithic cathedral, half in search and half by the draw of its beauty. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before, majestic and overwhelming, delicate and detailed. It exuded grandiosity at the same time as grace. Up close, it was even bigger than I had realized. Its entry arches alone dwarfed me with the kind of grandeur reserved only for the divine. I stood marveling at the stoic row of saints perched atop the vestibular arches, each exuding a severe silence, watching over the throng of tourists below with something resembling patient disdain. Ever higher my eyes wandered, lingering on the intricacies of the church's stonework façade. The enormous rose window, peering out from the nave wall, the detailed effigies of saints standing laconically before it, the perfect symmetry of the aisle windows, the spindly row of columns marking the limit of the church proper, and finally, the two sturdy turrets rising so high into the bright sky that I could barely look at them. I knew I would get lost if I stepped in now, and my afternoon was already dwindling. Casting one last glance at the magnificent spectacle, I turned away, in search of my coveted bookstore. All I knew was that it was opposite Notre Dame, and armed with this information, I wandered through a few side streets, hoping to stumble across the famous Shakespeare and Company. When my search yielded no results, I finally stopped a couple of French women to ask for directions in my best French. My best French was, of course, 
not particularly good, and they graciously pointed the way, accompanied by English instructions. They pointed back the way I had come, toward the train station, and as I set off in that direction, I finally saw it. In a quiet, low road, peeking out from behind the branches of a cherry tree, a humble storefront emerged. As I approached, the details began to come into focus. The mismatched benches and cafe tables dotting the sidewalk. The crooked bookshelves crammed with volumes lining the outer walls. The windows framed with hand-painted messages like diary entries. And above it all, the haphazard signage proudly announcing that one had arrived at Shakespeare and Company. Outside, the sidewalk buzzed with book lovers, milling around the shop front, fingering the bookshelves, lounging on benches, and leafing through newly purchased novels. The atmosphere was a mixture of homely and electric. Just from looking at the place, it was clear this was no ordinary bookstore. It earned the title, as it had once been described, of a socialist utopia masquerading as a bookstore. As I walked through the cozy front door, squeezing past several exiting patrons, I entered the kind of world that I had dreamed of as a child. The walls were obscured completely by row upon row of bookshelves. People stood dreamily eyeing the stories on offer, some chatting amicably with the bohemian behind the counter, listening in rapture as he explained what it was like living and working at the famous Shakespeare and Company. And that was the thing that had drawn me here. That was one of the quirks among others, that made this bookstore so special. Upon first hearing about Shakespeare and Company, I'd been charmed to hear of this arrangement that stretched back over almost a century. From almost the moment of its conception, the place had been a home to writers and poets, offering a place to sleep for any would-be author who needed one, along with many who didn't. That open-door philosophy had morphed into what it was today. Young writers were invited to live in one of the many haphazard beds dotted about the store in exchange for a little help in the shop. They were to use the time spent there as something of a residency, a period in which to work on novels, develop stories, spill their thoughts and ideas onto paper, and famously, to read one book every day. Tumbleweeds, they were called, and the idea had made Shakespeare and Company an almost mythical institution among writers and bohemians. I had already been enthralled by the idea from afar, and here I was, amongst it. I wandered spellbound through the store, browsing its shelves with a manner verging on reverence. Secrets and clues of the store's surreal nature revealed themselves to me as I walked. Messages inscribed throughout the store in the same handwriting that had adorned the outer walls. One rise of a low step read, Live for Humanity, and that seemed to sum up the heart of the place. The store was small and cozy, and it took only a few moments to traverse the shop floor. 
but there was more to beckon me, and it did so, of course, in the most poetic fashion. A winding staircase, loaded on every side with more and more books, led up to another level. The staircase was painted a jovial red, the treads of each step worn down to the bare wood and further, each one recessed from decades of visitors. And again, on each rise was written in clear, straight letters a word or two. In sequence, read from bottom to top, they spelled out a message. I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. As if expecting to enter Narnia, I climbed the stairs with a trembling anticipation and emerged into a space equally as small, but even more crowded than the floor below. I could hardly believe my eyes. I walked as if entranced, as if bewitched, through the space before me, at once peaceful and chaotic. This floor, I came to understand, was the library, housing thousands upon thousands of books on every subject imaginable. It was here that I spied the beds that had sheltered innumerable authors stretching back through history, many lofty names among them. Each bed was no more than a couch or a padded bench, nestled inconspicuously among the bookshelves. And then, on every table, every ledge, every spare space, were plants and postcards, plaques and bookmarks. A cat or two lounged lazily on a chair or a window sill. The floor was broken up into a series of rooms and corners, and I went to inspect the reading nook tucked into one end of the space. It seemed to double as a bed by night, and the low ceiling above it was covered with a blanket of letters, notes, photos, and messages. Each had been affixed haphazardly by passing patrons in a bid to leave something of themselves behind to remain part of this literary oasis. I turned, after inspecting the anthology of left-behind messages, and walked past a few shelves and through a doorway. The lintel displayed another hand-painted quote. Be not inhospitable to strangers, lest they be angels in disguise. Another principle of the bookstore and its age-long tradition. There, past the threshold, another nook, and this one appeared to be a repurposed cupboard, transformed into the tiniest office I had ever seen. To enter, I had to duck inside the low wooden box and immediately sit in what was just enough space for one person. It was like entering a secret chamber, a cubby house, and it was almost furnished like one. A small chair faced the makeshift desk, really more of a ledge constructed into the cupboard's sidewall. And atop that ledge sat a typewriter, sheets of paper already loaded and ready to be mused upon, or laying alongside, the pages dotted with the crooked writings of previous poets and wordsmiths. Behind the typewriter, on either side, the walls were plastered with the same array of hand-scrawled notes that had adorned the previous nook. 
Awkward, unsmiling passport photos were taped alongside watercolor renderings of the store. Stickers of obscure bands served as adhesive for the confessions and ponderings that layered themselves up the walls and obscured the whole ceiling. I sat for a while, reading as many scraps as were illuminated by the string of fairy lights that bordered the little alcove. When my eyes could no longer strain against the light, I re-entered the library proper. From around another corner, I heard the rich and welcoming sound of a piano. I followed its voice, the deep bellowing and light tinkling, to find, tucked in yet another room, an upright piano. Before it sat a young man, blonde and bespectacled, playing languidly, his motions light and non-committal. In yet another room, readers lounged on soft and cozy couches. Another boasted posters for an upcoming poetry reading. And all around, in every nook and cranny, every spare inch of space, were books, most of them well-loved and dog-eared. This, I thought, is what a bookshop should be. And before I left, I took from my bag my journal. Tearing out a leaf of paper, I wrote my future self a letter. I affixed it haphazardly to the ceiling above some aspiring writer's bed, knowing that I was leaving a part of myself behind, at the same time as crafting a part of myself to come. That was In the Shadow of Notre Dame, written by Jazz Meyer. Beautiful tale describing a wonderful place full of ideas and hope and human connection. If you're still awake, I hope you're feeling relaxed and are ready to rest easy. And if you're not quite tired yet, you can always listen to another episode of See You in Sleep County. And hopefully by the end of that wonderful tale, you'll already be lost somewhere deep in the land of dreams. I want to thank you so much for joining us for another episode of See You in Sleep County. As always, if you'd like to become part of this podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash seeyouinsleepcounty and your donations will get you wonderful benefits as well as help us continue to put the time, love, and energy into this podcast that we know it deserves. And if you'd like to support us in another way, tell your friends, family, and loved ones about See You in Sleep County and let them know just how many beautiful stories are waiting here for them. I want to thank you again for giving us your time and attention and listening to See You in Sleep County. There will be so many stories to come, and we look forward to sharing them all with you. I want to thank you once again for joining us for another episode of See You in Sleep County. I'm Blake Farha, and I want to wish you good night, sweet dreams, and I'll see you in Sleep County.